This is 100 Years of Cox. You are listening to a podcast by Francis Thompson. Quick, quick, I need to get this episode recorded before one of my neighbours starts up a lawnmower. They do like cutting their grass round here, generally just as I'm about to record. Anyway, off we go. We have four budget letters today. Arthur has been in the ferry boat across the Tamar again to Raim Head for sketching and bird watching. This time he has lost some brand new paintbrushes. He writes a list of all the things he has damaged or lost at Raim Head, including one pair of trousers, one pair of knickers, one pair of gym shoes, one pair of field glasses, and six best paint brushes, not to mention an unlimited amount of cuticle, shoe leather, and temper. Knickers was an abbreviation for knickerbockers, which are old-fashioned baggy trousers. Arthur has a new boy at Garfield House School, Watson Major, who is very loquacious. The personality of interesting schoolboys is something that never fails to entertain the members of the budget. Aldwin writes one more letter before returning by ship to Africa. He looks forward to rejoining the budget in his next holiday, which should be in 1913, and he hopes the budget will still be thriving. He describes the gifts he is taking back to Nyasaland, including a rifle, a canteen for itinerating purposes, and a collapsible bath. Aldwin has learnt how to use the telephone, and so has Avis. She was brave enough to call Bernard at the office and say, slops, which is apparently Bernard's favourite expression. Vera describes the siblings accompanying Aldwin to Southampton to see him off on the ship. And she also describes how she and Avis are mad on roller skating at the moment. Edmund writes about his dog, who is called Satan, and the Church Lads Brigade, who are forming a blackface minstrel troupe. And Annie May has solved Cuthbert's riddle about what can go up and down the chimney. Before I read you some letters from 1909, I'm going to read you some of my budget correspondence from 2021. Michelle Jackson wrote to me about the family letters she has, which were written by her great uncle William. They relate to the separation from his wife following years of alcoholism, which led him to seek medical assistance. In the first letter, great uncle William writes, it's all very well for people to say, don't despair, you won't always be down. I'm not writing to you as a half-mad man. I'm writing to you in my proper sense and as one who has no one to turn to. In the second letter, he speaks briefly about his time in hospital. Great Uncle William's children were looked after by his mother. One of the children later spoke of her cruelty and how she, as an alcoholic, would drink with her son to make him worse. Her story is also a tragic one. She was orphaned following the early death of her father in a tragic accident. Her mother died 11 years later of spinal meningitis. She was just 14 when she was orphaned. After William left hospital, he was reconciled with his wife, but then World War I started. He was a Royal Marine and he served on board ship with the Royal Navy. His life was cut short when a mine blew up his ship off the coast of France and he's commemorated on the Chatham Memorial. Best wishes, Michelle. It's great to receive some correspondence and to hear other people's family stories. People say how lucky I am to have this treasure trove of budget letters. And I know I am. It is a wonderful archive of letters. But the stories are not always happy ones. Sometimes you discover great tragedy that your parents never told you about. Edmund, in particular, has great tragedy ahead of him. And Enid and Avis, as mothers, also experience incredible tragedy. Sam Cipola, or is it Cipola? She wrote to me from New York about letters and handwriting. She said, Since I can remember, I've loved handwriting and letters. I saved all the notes I got in high school and all the notes I took for classes. When my boyfriend wrote me letters, I kept those as well. A little piece of yourself written into each note, article and story. Nothing is better than handwritten notes. Why do people think thank you notes are so special? 
because it is, because it is personal to you, specific to that receiver. Even now as an adult, I'm excited by handwritten cards and pictures drawn by my nieces and nephews. In 2012, I started my genealogy trip. Wow, I had no idea what that would get me into. My parents had kept boxes of newspaper clippings, albums and letters, and handed them all over to me. What absolute treasures. There are also letters that my great-grandmother wrote to Maria von Trapp, as in the Sound of Music family, the von Trapps, but I haven't found those yet. I absolutely love handwriting and knowing that you have a piece of history. You're holding something that your great-grandparent held, that they wrote on, that their very essence is in. It's exhilarating from Samantha. Well, I know what you mean, and I think most people interested in family history would agree. Whether letters are typed or handwritten, knowing that your great-grandparents held them and wrote them is very special. When I was in Oxford in the Bodleian Library and was uncovering so many treasures, I kept wanting to shriek or do a little happy dance, and sometimes other library users glared at me, and they even said shush. Gloria Mills from Ontario in Canada wrote and told me that she is the genealogist in her family, researching the many brothers and sisters of her parents and grandparents. Gloria's dad kept a photo of his granddad on the mantelpiece, and she says, that man's image scared the living daylights out of me. His eyes were intense and he seemed so fierce. He was apparently the sort of man that you are describing Dr Cox to be. Grumpy, curmudgeon, argumentative. Old Boshy was his name and his word was always the last word. I wish there had been a budget in our family. Meanwhile, I'll have to live vicariously through your family stories. Well, yes, Dr Cox, my second great-grandfather, was definitely a grumpy old man. He shouted at carol singers and he chased them out of the garden and he picked an argument with the sexton at the church in the village of Branscombe in Dorset when the family were on their summer holidays. Unfortunately, I don't know what the argument in the churchyard was about, but Dr Cox wasn't happy. If you don't know the difference between a verger and a sexton, well, a verger carries a ceremonial rod or staff, which is known as the verge, which is used in services in a formal way. The verger also takes care of the church buildings and grounds, but isn't a member of clergy. Whereas the sexton may also be the gravedigger and the bell ringer as well. I think today the roles may have merged somewhat in some churches and cathedrals. And Gloria and I have been emailing about her ancestors and my ancestors who were gay, or we think they were gay, and how on earth do you know if they were gay or not? Gloria's great uncle lived with a spinster sister, and it was an unspoken thing that the family knew about and accepted. It's a similar thing in my family. I have no doubt that Bernard, Cuthbert and Wilfred were gay, absolutely no doubt although nothing is ever mentioned in the budget letters. Being gay was, of course, illegal. But in their later lives, both Bernard and Cuthbert lived with a gentleman friend, and the family knew and accepted it, but nothing was ever said. I know this because one of Arthur's sons wrote it all down, when all the cousins were reminiscing about their parents, and they wrote, don't put this in the budget, it's all going to the Bodleian Library soon, and we don't want every Tom, Dick and Harry knowing our business. I've inherited these letters from the 1970s, written by the cousins, and other branches of the family in Canada and Oxford have copies of the same letters. Wilfred did something outrageous, and he was banished from the budget in the 1920s, but I have no idea what he did. Possibly something to do with his sexuality or alcoholism, but I'm merely speculating. And Vera, was she gay or not? Victorians believed it wasn't possible for a woman to be a lesbian. Some international women hockey players were notoriously butch or gay or feminists, but who knows? Vera spent the last years of her life with a female companion called Bill, and Vera left everything to Bill when she died. David and my grandfather never said Vera was gay in their letters, but they never said she wasn't either, so I really don't know. I'd love to hear from you if you have stories of ancestors who were gay and people knew about it. I'd like to do a podcast episode on ancestors who were gay or you think they were gay from snippets that have been pieced together. Were they out and open about it all or were they hiding in plain sight as my ancestors were and Gloria's great uncle was as well?
Please contact me if you have something you're willing to share and then I can include it in a future podcast. And do please write to me about your genealogy story or any old letters you have. People think that podcasts receive loads of correspondence and reviews, but actually this one doesn't. All I know is the town or city in which the download occurs and that there are people listening in 35 countries. I'd love to know why you find my podcast interesting. You can email me at matrilcoxletters at gmail.com and I'm also on Twitter at Cox Letters and my DMs are open. If you are on Twitter, you might have seen my article about Edmund when a World War I German Zeppelin dropped bombs on Hallam Fields in 1916 and one landed on the church. Edmund's letters are generally a bit rubbish. He is always full of excuses. But in 1916, he wrote a cracker of a letter, including so much detail. If you're not on Twitter, you can actually just type Francis Thompson Zeppelin bombs into your search engine and the article I wrote will pop up. It is my retelling of Edmund's Zeppelin letter, which I read in season one, episode nine of the podcast. But my article has some photos as well. As a result of that tweet, Catherine Allen contacted me. She lives in Derbyshire. In fact, just down the road from Edmunds Church in Hallam Fields. If you're interested, have a look on maps. The old church is on the corner of Hallam Fields Road and Crompton Road. This is the building on which a bomb landed in 1916 and Edmund wrote all about it. Catherine says, The World War I War Memorial is now at the Stanton Institute, which is the rugby field down the road from the old church. And there are always poppies around the memorial on Armistice Day. There is no sign of the school now on Hallam Fields Road. The whole area is an industrial estate. The school was right next door to the Stanton Ironworks and closed around 1938 due to fears about Stanton being a target for German bombers. And then you reach the Canal Lock, which is still known locally as Hot Waters, as the water which cooled the furnaces was then pumped back into the canal. One thing that made me chuckle was Edmund's very astute observation about the indifference to the war. Having lived here through a pandemic, I wish I could tell him that the mindset of the locals hasn't changed much. It is very much a bubble away from the rest of the world, in the locals' opinion. It is almost impossible to comprehend the scale of the Stanton site. There were multiple foundries and coke ovens, but it kept expanding. At its height, there was a quarry, a concrete works, timber yards, tar works, a brick works and several pipe works, a social club, a bus terminal, six doctor's surgeries and the Stanton Institute, which had football and rugby pitches, bowling greens and tennis courts. Thousands of people worked there. The houses adjacent to the church on Crompton Street were built for the Stanton workers, as were many of the houses in neighbouring Kirkhallam. Our street was built because of the growing need for housing for the workers. The pollution must have been hellish because the foundries ran day and night. They only stopped on Christmas Day and Easter. Some of the ground in our garden is magnetic. I kid you not, from the fallout I assume. We moved a shed that had been in place for decades and if you hold a magnet over the ground, iron from the ground springs up onto the magnet. Quite remarkable. It would have blown up from the works in the wind and our house is half a mile away from the old church. Quite how they lived with such a backdrop is truly a testament to their strength of character. It must have been extraordinary to discover this collection, but even more so to discover them in the Bodleian. I think I would have passed out. The siblings left behind such a wonderful legacy. What a joy and indeed privilege it is to get to know and understand them through their own words. Best wishes, Catherine. I was amazed by Catherine's email. Her garden is magnetic? Wow. But what is even more shocking is that everyone in Hallam Fields grew their own veg, both in the early 1900s and through both wars. The land behind the church, behind the terraced houses on Crompton Road, was full of allotments. Edmund writes about helping families dig their allotment as the father of the house was away fighting in the war. And Edmund tells his siblings what he is growing in the parsonage garden. All that pollution from the ironworks ending up in the gardens and allotments where people grew their vegetables. But it was a total necessity as it was a very poor area. 
If you haven't listened to season two, episode four, which is called Enid's Ostrich Feather Hat, that episode describes Edmund and May getting married and all the working class locals staring at Edmund's wealthy family and Enid's extravagant hat as they wait in their carriage. I have a photo of Edmund speaking to the crowd at the unveiling of the war memorial next to the church after World War I. When the church was closed, the memorial was moved and I'd wondered where it had gone to. Well, enough of 1916. We are now jumping back to letters from 1909. I always enjoy Arthur's letters as he is so entertaining, even if he does brag about never having kept the budget longer than a week. In this letter, he is sad as the budget has been lost in the post. He was expecting to receive a large bundle of letters, eight or nine courses to digest, but instead he only gets Cuthbert's modest bill of fare. Arthur's letter. Garfield House, Devonport, 26th of January, 1909. Dear family, I wonder which member of the budget had a presentiment of impending disaster. So little prepared was I for its untimely end that this very morning I remarked to Dorothy, today or tomorrow the budget will be with me. And so it is, but alas, quantum mutatis ab illo. My only consolation, personally, is that I had already read several of the letters. I've been wondering whether, perchance, there was some Jonah on board to bring such a catastrophe upon us on this particular occasion. In the absence of the usual eight or nine courses, to vary the metaphor somewhat violently, I've been able to digest Cuthbert's modest bill of fare at my ease. I could have done with more. My little visit to Sydenham was very enjoyable. I felt rather ill most of the time, but as no one would believe it, I tried to think they were right, and every now and then mixed myself and Aldwin in action to dispel the illusion. I felt greatly aggrieved that no ladies' hockey was arranged during my stay in the neighbourhood. I always feel at Sydenham the advantage of belonging to such a capable family. If I wanted to do anything or get anywhere, I trusted myself implicitly to a brother or a sister and it was done or we got there. Cuthbert piloted me through slush and fog to the haven where I would be and Bernard took tickets for me at the wrong theatre. One day, as perhaps you have heard, there was a heavy fall of snow. Talking of snow, I can well believe now that a barefoot run in it is splendid for chilblains, but the first five minutes is painful. This afternoon, I spent half an hour barefoot at Rame Head. It has been freezing more or less all day, but in the sun it was beautifully warm and sheltered, and I had to wade a little to explore a new place in the bay. I encountered a coast guard there who was collecting wood for Mother. He was a very nice man, and we talked for nearly an hour, and eventually climbed up the cliff together. It was marvellous how he managed a huge load of wood, for the cliff was wet and slippery. The ravens have got their nest just ready for eggs already. I hear that father has been to see Crystal Palace in the great cup tie. It must have been well worth watching and I envy him. I went that day to see Argyle versus Swindon, which I quite enjoyed. I took Dorothy and she was greatly entertained when both sides began fighting all in a moment. It was really rather grotesque as they paired off and went at it hard for half a minute but they finished up quite good friends. The Wallabies fizzled out rather with the rugby. Last night I went to rather a formidable dinner at Ponsonby's. There were ten males and no females. It was really rather interesting. They were all strangers to me and the funny thing was that nearly all of them reminded me very strongly of someone else. There were doubles of Rudyard Kipling, young Hull, he was the mayor of Plymouth, Lord Annerley, amongst others. I never found out Rudyard Kipling's real name, though I sat next to him at dinner and we discussed everything under the sun. He knew most of my old Newton friends and enemies, and my other neighbour, the new headmaster of Plymouth College, knew the rest. 
The Commander-in-Chief, Admiral Fawkes, was there. He is a splendid old fellow, bigger than Ponsonby and with a delightful face. Unfortunately, I did not have a chance of talking to him about Cousin Ellen. I have a new boy, Watson Major, who is a caution. He is a mixture of Gloucester and Alford. I don't think either of those heroes figure in the budget index, but they will be known to some of you. He is very loquacious in school. Each day I get more exasperated, but he seems to be totally unaffected by any remarks of mine. Finally, he gave a loud whistle as I was beginning a lesson, and I told him to come to me afterwards. As his first week had not yet elapsed, I decided that I must let him off with just a jaw. So I asked him why he had done so, to which he replied with great unconcern, because I felt tired. I said, do you always whistle in school when you feel tired? Sometimes, he said, instead of stretching or saying ho, ho. I gave it up. Saying ho, ho is a synonym for yawning, I expect. The first time I began jawing him after school about his inattention, I hadn't got more than a sentence out when he walked across the room and pointed to a stuffed cuckoo in a case and said, that's a lark. It wasn't, it is a cuckoo. I suppose, Cuthbert, that there is really no answer to your conundrum about what can go up and down a chimney. But if there is an answer, it might be down. Enid, I haven't told you that your godson the other day recited his creed to Dorothy. And in the course of it, he made the startling statement that he believed in the Roman Catholic Church. Fancy that. As to books, I have to rely on my vague recollections. Please take note, unless you're all delighted with The Gentleman by Alfred Ollivant, you are very hard to please. In the holiday, I read Ode Bob, being very hard up for books and disliking the title intensely. To my pleasant surprise, I was enchanted by it. There is not a flaw in it to my mind. Directly I got back, I saw the gentleman at the bookstall and took it on spec. Nothing could be more different. It is about a plot to kidnap Nelson and is told very convincingly. Whether there is the least historical justification for it, I know not, nor greatly care. The style is remarkable, very short chapters and tense language, hardly a dependent clause from beginning to end. A most risible book, if anything a little overpowering. I won't criticise more till you have read it. On the strength of it, I ordered two other books of his and got Redcoat Captain. If any of you read it, I shall be curious to know what you make of it. Again, nothing could be more different. What the idea of it all is, I really don't know. It is perfectly mad, but entertaining up to a certain point in its very madness. A sort of skit on a John Strange winter story, told in baby language. Perhaps that is the idea. I am greatly struck by the number of books that are quite interesting up to halfway and then get hopeless. The Grey Knight, Mrs. de la Pasture. I liked it, but I forget the story. A Marriage by Blackmail, Lady Trowbridge. Better than its title, but it doesn't last out well. I was struck by a remarkable misprint. The family lawyer is having a formal interview with an adventuress and suddenly says, You are wrong, Tammuz, in your impression. Tammuz would be rather an effective pet name, but I interpret Tammuz as a corruption of I am sure. The miracle about the young Turks is by Moore's cousin, you know Moore who works here at Garfield House. It is written under a pseudonym and introduces Noel Buxton and others as characters. I haven't read it yet. It is most astonishing that the Balkan committee were taken even more by surprise than the rest of the world. Moore's cousin is now off to Persia as correspondent to the Daily Chronicle and two other papers. What does the budget think of O.S. and Winston Churchill? Everybody seems to be talking of it. I doubt if the matter will rest there. If Winston really made a cowardly, personal attack on Joseph Chamberlain, and that is not my interpretation of his language, O.S. himself is surely guilty of a breach of privilege. 
and in making a far nastier attack on Winston, is almost beyond reach of retaliation. Politics are terribly troublesome. No sooner has one mugged up tariff reform than the bogey of land values has to be tackled. January the 31st. I refrained from posting this the same day that I received it, not to be too aggressively virtuous. But I have today received from Aldwin a letter urging me to hurry up and post it, so I will delay no longer. I revisited Ramehead yesterday, armed with sketching outfit. I promptly lost about seven shillings worth of paintbrushes, in a case given me by Christopher to keep them safe, and spent the whole afternoon looking for them unsuccessfully. Really, the place is one of ill omen for me. I have lost or hopelessly damaged there one pair of trousers, one pair of knickers, one pair of gym shoes, one pair of field glasses, six best paintbrushes in a case, not to mention an unlimited amount of cuticle, shoe leather and temper. We have a charming lot of servants just at present. I suppose it is tempting Providence to say so. They are as relieved as we are to have seen the last of Miss Rimmington. My most violent exercise just now is ping-pong with more. I am about to drop this budget into the pillar box with some trepidation. My responsibility ends there. I can't answer for it from pillar to post. Awaiting the favour of an early reply. Yours to command, without prejudice, A.H. Machel Cox. Notes on Arthur's letter. Arthur said, I wonder which member of the budget had a presentiment of impending disaster. Today or tomorrow the budget will be with me, and so it is, but alas, quantum mutatis ab illo. What is interesting is what Arthur doesn't say. He quotes a Latin phrase, fully expecting that all his siblings would know what he was saying and why he chose to include that quote, and he doesn't explain himself. Quantum mutatis ab illo means how changed from what he was. Arthur is quoting from the Ennead, which is a Latin epic poem written by Virgil and considered to be one of the greatest works of Latin literature. I've never learnt any Latin, but Arthur spoke Latin and he taught it to the boys of Carfield House. Enneas is the hero, a Trojan, and he is describing another character who appears covered in blood, not looking like the powerful hero he used to be. The budget has been lost in the post. Arthur was expecting a big thick envelope full of letters to read, but is disappointed to only receive one letter from Cuthbert. He's using this phrase, quantum mutatis ab illo, to express his disappointment about how the budget has changed greatly since the last time he read it. These siblings were an educated lot, and I'm always fascinated by what they tell each other, although sometimes I have to do quite a bit of research to work it out. Arthur has heard that Dr Cox got tickets for the football cup tie at Crystal Palace, and he is jealous as on the same day he only watched Plymouth Argyle versus Swindon, and there was a fight between the two teams, and he would rather have been at Crystal Palace instead. I looked up the two matches, and Arthur is talking about Saturday 16th of January 1909. Arthur and Dorothy were watching Plymouth Argyle playing Swindon in Plymouth. Argyle were the winners of that match, 1-0, but I couldn't find anything about the players fighting. Dr Cox was in London at Crystal Palace, where Palace were playing Wolverhampton Wanderers. There was a draw to all, so there was a rematch a few days later, which it appears Arthur didn't know about. This time Crystal Palace won, four goals to two. But I found an interesting fact about the 1909 FA Cup final, which was played in April 1909, again at Crystal Palace. The final was played between Manchester United and Bristol City and Man United won. But the bit that fascinated me was about Billy the Goat, who was the mascot of Man United from 1905 to 1909. Apparently, in April 1909, after the match, the Goat drank too much champagne and promptly died of alcohol poisoning. Billy the goat was then preserved by a taxidermist and his head still hangs on the wall of the Man United Museum at Old Trafford today.
You do find out some strange general knowledge from this podcast. The Australian Wallabies had a carpet python as a mascot, which died after eating an English mouse. And Man United had a goat as their mascot, but he drank too much champagne and died. So they had him stuffed and mounted his head on the wall. Honestly, you couldn't make this stuff up. Arthur wonders what the budget thinks about O.S. and Winston Churchill, who were evidently in the news in January 1909. This puzzled me for ages. I researched all the leading politicians of 1909 and I couldn't find any of them with the initials O.S. So I asked Twitter and clever people there found the answer. It sounds likely that Arthur was talking about Sir Owen Seaman, who was the editor of Punch from 1906 to 1932. If you've never heard of the magazine Punch, it was a very popular humorous and satirical magazine. The word cartoon was first coined in the mid-1800s as a result of the drawings that were in Punch. It sounds like all the ten siblings read it. Even Aldwin had it sent to him in Africa, cleverly hidden inside a copy of the Church Times, so it arrived safely and wasn't stolen en route. It sounds like Winston Churchill and Joseph Chamberlain were involved in some sort of public argument with Sir Owen and everyone was talking about it. Nothing much really changes in politics, obviously. Arthur uses abbreviations and calls him OS because clearly the siblings all knew who he was talking about. He had no idea that I would be reading his letter 112 years later, trying to work out who on earth he was talking about. In a previous letter... Arthur was telling his siblings all about the servants at Garfield House and Miss Rimmington, who I think was Arthur's difficult housekeeper. He finishes his letter saying he has some very nice servants at the moment and thank goodness Miss Rimmington has gone. Aldwin's letter. 13 Longton Avenue, Sydenham, February the 4th, 1909. Dear family, for the last time for, I suppose, several years, I'm allowed to write as a regular member of the budget and not simply as a foreign contributor who makes casual contributions. I look forward to once again rejoining you in, say, 1913. May the budget still be living. I hope I am not the Jonah who caused the previous loss of the last budget. The GPO say they have no knowledge of it. All my luggage was sent off for Southampton on Tuesday and now I'm busy trying to think what I have forgotten. I've only got a Gladstone bag left so I shan't have much room for left behinds. I am very fortunate in the number of lordly presents I'm taking back, partly for myself partly for general use at Kota Kota. They include a fine tent with fitted mosquito net, a thermos flask, a handbag and a rifle. The latter may be news to some of the budget. Enid and Cyril kindly gave me the choice. I hesitated for a long time between a camera and a rifle, finally deciding in favour of the latter. I'm equally ignorant of the use of either. I have never shot game, but as a volunteer, had to do a little shooting at targets, at which I was quite ordinary, getting quite sufficient to pass the test, but running no risk at all of becoming a marksman. I asked the advice of one of the UMCA, who has had a good deal of shooting in Lake Nyassa, and he strongly urged me to get a rifle. By his advice, I got a .303 Sporting Lee Enfield. It seemed a really good one. And I think Geoffrey is too good a firm to try and trade on my ignorance. You will be interested to hear that included in the varieties which I may shoot are hippo, bush pig, warthog, hartlebeast, waterbuck, sharps, antelope, etc. There is a good deal of game around Kota Kota. I haven't much ambition as to lions and leopards, not to mention elephants, as the latter means paying for a £25 licence. I look forward to getting some recreation out of the rifle, even if I am a bad shot. Other things I'm taking back with me are a canteen for itinerating, i.e. a bucket packed with pots and pans, etc., which is given for use at Kota Kota by the UMCA Stamp Club. 
Also, three dozen sacred wall pictures, given by an unknown lady, made up in rolls of a dozen each, specially for itinerating purposes. Then, too, I've had a desirable luxury, given me by my friend Kerwin, in the shape of a collapsible bath. When I went out last time, he gave me a set of safety razors, so he is evidently determined that I shall be clean and respectable, even though I live in the wild of Africa. February the 5th, Bernard and I and mother, exclamation mark, went out to a progressive whist party at the George's the other night. Mother trampled round the room in fine style and on one occasion went and aired herself in the doorway in her dear old familiar way. She carried off the second lady's prize and Bernard got the first gentleman's prize whilst I did my best to be a booby by stopping seven deals at one table. I see that Cuthbert couldn't resist trying to improve my booby story by that most corrupt but subtle method of embroidery by suggestion. I'm afraid I created another mild sensation by my remark at the Georges to Mrs Beck of St Philip's fame. She had remained stationary at a table for 11 deals. At last we both moved and were partners and won by the old trick. I told her that there was nothing like a combination of boobies. Cuthbert, your final conundrum is quite too much for me. I have no idea what can go up and down the chimney. NB, as I write this, mother is currently moodily munching her thumb. I will vouch for Cuthbert's performance on the telephone. Telephone, by the way, has a capital T. But I don't think he has yet rung up anyone for himself at a public telephone call office. Having only just learnt myself, I am trying to imitate Avis and Vera. Avis called up Bernard yesterday in fine style and said slops to him, which is Burr's favourite expression at the moment. He couldn't reply in suitable terms owing to the presence of his office clerks. Arthur, I have packed your teddy bear and I look forward to seeing it perform in Nyasaland. I much appreciated also your list for forwarding the budget with its column for excuses. I hope it will be an object lesson to all members to cut short their excuses in future. I have made so many journeys that I cannot describe my impressions of everything, but I must say how much I appreciated Edmund's compact little house. The hall is quite palatial and I am sure is to be envied at Sydenham. The only thing I remembered that I didn't like was one of the very things of which most people sing the praises, i.e. their system of double curtains, with a rod across the middle of the window. Whilst I was there, Edmund, as usual, insulted my nose. I remarked that my nose was beyond repair, and he rejoined, well, my nose is beyond control which is a very delightful way of speaking of his very expressive nose. I have reread Count Dracula by Bram Stoker and still feel that it is quite the most realistically ghastly and creepy book I have ever read. I remember that I once lent a copy of it to my friend Birch at college many years ago. He took it home and he lent it to an old parson whose housekeeper started to read it while he was out and she got so worked up that she locked the door and wouldn't let him in when he returned. Well, it is with a sad heart that I close my letter as this is my last evening at home. I hope that this exile may shortly be privileged to describe the abode and doings of another exile, Neville. Farewell, my beloved Aldwin. Notes on Aldwin's letter. Imagine you were living in London and you were about to get on a ship at Southampton. All your luggage is taken for you to the ship at Southampton and you only have to carry one Gladstone bag yourself on the train to the ship. What a life. I've said it before, I know, but my family were comfortably wealthy. They were a privileged lot. Aldwin has presents, a tent 
with fitted mosquito net, a thermos flask, a handbag and a rifle. Enid and Cyril let Aldwin choose. Did he want a rifle or a camera? He has no idea what to do with either, so he chooses a rifle. Of course he does. He's vaguely used the gun before, but is no expert. We will hear more in future letters about Aldwin's rifle and what he shoots and how his rifle helps with building a school in Nyasaland. Aldwin also has a canteen for itinerating, which is a bucket packed with pots and pans, which was a gift from the UMCA stamp club, and also three dozen sacred wall paintings, which were given specially for itinerating purposes. If you're not keeping up, UMCA stands for the university's mission to Central Africa, which was set up and run jointly by the universities of Cambridge and Oxford to bring Christianity, schools, healthcare and education to Africa. Aldwin is employed by the UMCA in Malawi as a Church of England missionary priest from 1906 until his death on the island of Lacoma in 1960. And Aldwin's friend Kerwin has given him a collapsible bath. In 1906, Kerwin gave Aldwin some safety razors. Aldwin clearly needs to be clean and respectable, even living in the wilds of Africa. Itinerating purposes. Not a word you often hear today. If you are going itinerating, it means you're going travelling. And Aldwin did this a lot, between the little villages where he lived in Malawi. The local word was Ulendo. Aldwin talks a lot about going on Ulendo and he has a canteen for itinerating. It is all very easy to picture in your mind. Aldwin, wearing a long white alb, belted at the waist, with African men as his companions and assistants, travelling between villages in the early years of the 1900s. Aldwin can vouch for Cuthbert's performance on the telephone. And telephone has a capital T. This was clearly a momentous event, using the telephone for the very first time. Aldwin has also recently learnt how to use the telephone, but clearly Avis and Vera are more experienced. Bernard's favourite word is currently slops. So Avis calls Bernard up at the office and says slops, but Bernard cannot answer in an appropriate fashion, as his office clerks would overhear the conversation, and this clearly wouldn't be the done thing. This story of telephone behaviour between siblings is really quite believable. The book Count Dracula was written by Bram Stoker in 1897, just 12 years before Aldwin writes this letter. He remembers reading it at college and lending it to a friend who in turn lent it to the parson. The parson's housekeeper starts reading the book and she gets so anxious that she locks the door and won't let the parson in when he returns home. Aldwin says that Dracula is the most realistically ghastly book he's ever read. February the 5th, 1909, was Aldwin's last evening at home with his family in Sydenham. He bids the family farewell with a sad heart and says this exile will soon be able to describe another exile. Aldwin is going to visit Neville in South Africa on his way back to Malawi and he will tell the family all about Neville's house and his life in Pretoria. I'll just give you one snippet which I read recently from 1953. There are loads of letters in the budget that Aldwin wrote to Vera. A brother and a sister wrote a weekly letter to each other for over 50 years, from 1909 to 1960, as well as all the budget letters. In one of these letters, Aldwin said that the European staff at Lacoma had spent the whole day listening to the wireless. It was the coronation of the new Queen on Wednesday 3rd of June 1953. Fortunately, a new battery had been obtained from somewhere, so the wireless worked properly. He said they could hear the speeches and the proceedings very clearly, and afterwards they all raised a toast. Vera's letter. 13 Longton Avenue, Sydenham, South East, February 11th, 1909. Dear family, it is such a melancholy task to be contributing towards a new budget. All the more so, as the last budget contained such a long letter of mine, in order to make up for past delinquencies. 
Avis, Bernard and I all went down to Southampton last Saturday to see Aldwin off. We left home at seven in the morning in order to get to the office for the eight o'clock service and then we all had breakfast there afterwards. We left Waterloo at 11.30 and were lucky enough to secure a carriage to ourselves. We had a most exciting rubber of bridge, which Aldwin and Avis just managed to win before we arrived at Southampton. The Norman is a pretty large ship and looked quite comfortable, but not to be compared to the Kenilworth, the ship that Aldwin travelled in last time. There were three ladies and a man going out with Aldwin, so they made quite a large party, and in that way the parting was not half so hard as last time, as three of them had been out before and were old friends. Miss Parsons, of whom you have all heard, was one of the party, and I certainly like her very much. Then there was Miss Mann, whom the elder family knew at Litchfield. She seemed decidedly nice. Miss Burridge, a new worker, did not attract me greatly. The man, Mr Boucher, with whom Aldwin shared a cabin, was also new. He is not a gentleman, but he seemed very pleasant and with no pretensions. They all seemed to like him, though I thought he would be rather a bore. He was going out to Lacoma as an architect, I believe. Aldwin was very gratified to find a letter waiting for him on board ship from Arthur. Also one from Neville. It seemed ages after we were turned off the ship before it really got underway. But at last, about 4.30, they were really off. And we just had time for a final wave before we had to rush for our train. We got back to town at 10 minutes past seven and then Avis and Bernard went straight to the opera, not getting home till one in the morning. Avis and I are both mad on roller skating. We've been up to the palace twice and can just manage to get on a little by ourselves. Although, of course, it is much easier to go with someone who can already skate. I must say, I am very alarmed of tumbling as the asphalt floor is harder than anything I could have imagined. There is no doubt that if you are courageous and go boldly at it, that you learn twice as quickly. At present, I am far too cautious, but then I am rather afraid of damaging myself before the territorial hockey matches begin. The East play their first match tomorrow against the South at Bickley, and I am afraid we have not much chance of winning any of our matches, as we have some very weak spots in our team. It will rather be a question of how little we can manage to be beaten by. The rest of our East matches come next week, and then the middle of the week after, the English team is chosen, at the conclusion of the territorial matches. I do hope I shall get in again, but I'm more than doubtful, as forwards in a losing team don't have much chance of shining. But as Molly Gibson and myself are the strongest forwards for the East, we've had the weakest half put behind us. Cuthbert, what an awful conundrum you've asked at the end of your letter. I have no idea what can go up or down the chimney in that manner. Arthur, I'm so delighted that you liked Ode Bob. I think it is a splendid book. The Trail of the Lonesome Pine by John Fox Jr. is very interesting, though it goes a little bit off at the end. I've read a lot more books, but I cannot think of them now. Your affectionate sister, Vera M. M. Cox. Notes on Vera's letter. I always like how Vera calls a spade a spade. She was never a shrinking violet, but interestingly, she was not a suffragette. Aldwin has several companions on the ship travelling out to Africa. Other staff members of the UMCA. Miss Burridge did not attract Vera greatly. In other words, Vera didn't like her. And Mr Boucher is not a gentleman. And Vera thought he might be rather a bore. But Aldwin will be sharing a cabin with Mr Boucher. And in 1909, you could clearly address a letter to a ship at Southampton and it could be delivered to a passenger before the ship left. Imagine that. Aldwin has a letter from Arthur in Plymouth and another from Neville in South Africa waiting for him at the ship. The ship is off. It got underway. No problem, you are thinking. Why does she mention that? Because it's not spelled underway, U-N-D-E-R-W-A-Y, but it's spelt U-N-D-E-R-W-E-I-G-H. This appears to be because a ship can weigh anchor, W-E-I-G-H, 
which means the anchor is lifted and the ship is off. But I never knew underway was once spelled like this as a nautical term. Roller skating was very fashionable. Everyone was doing it. Although women, of course, would be roller skating whilst wearing skirts, which almost touched the ground. Try doing that. The skates had four wheels and were attached to your boot with leather straps and buckles. Many of England's seaside piers had an asphalt roller skating rink and Vera and Avis are clearly enjoying roller skating at the rink at Crystal Palace. But Vera is clearly anxious. As a hockey player, she doesn't want any injuries. Cuthbert wrote a riddle in his last budget letter. What is it that can't go up the chimney up or down the chimney up, but it can go down the chimney down or up the chimney down? Arthur has no idea. And Vera also can't work it out. Alduin says that Cuthbert's conundrum is too much for him. He doesn't know the answer either. Edmund's letter. The Parsonage. Hallam Fields, Ilkeston. February the 19th, 1909. Dear the rest of you, I see that unless I get the budget off today, I shall again be getting on the black books. So here goes. I filled up the excuse column directly I received the budget and inserted mother's name, as if she had not been spending a couple of precious days with us, during which period I had of course no time to spare except for work and mother. I might have been tempted to create a record by dispatching the budget in extra good time. I had just heard with great sorrow of the loss of the previous budget when the convalescent article arrived. Though still somewhat attenuated in dimensions, it will doubtless soon attain its normal condition and temperature. Till then, I think we ought to be very careful with it and guard against any possible shocks that might, for instance, be occasioned by any two sudden starts without a sufficient time for recuperation between its different stages of drivel. To be continued. February the 20th. There, I have done it after all. I am late again. I really consider I have a legitimate excuse for not getting this off yesterday, but I will not offer it. I must try to make up for it in some way. I'm afraid I've so far written rather a lot of comparative drivel. But as I seem to be considered as the Jonah that upset the last budget consignment by my contribution, I must be careful. I think Bernard is to be blamed for its loss. But I won't blame him on condition he does not blame me for being a day late. Another break. Only half an hour now in which to finish this before I have a meeting of some of our CLB lads about forming a minstrel troupe. I think I must make up for a very small contribution by including some CLB photos I had taken the other day. I suppose I shall have to send six copies so that each home budget member may have one if they want one. I was only going to have the small ones taken at two shillings and six per dozen. But unknowingly to me, the photographer, who is a member of our congregation, took two large ones as well and sent me proofs of the lot. I enclose three of the small proofs, one small framed one and two large proofs for budget members to abstract as the budget reaches them in their turn and not before. By the way, there is no list this time as to the next person to send the budget to with the address. I hope this will be remedied. If I remember correctly, Avis is the next on the list, so I will post it on to her. Before I forget it, I must tell you that Cuthbert's riddle, which by the way is a very good one, is now solved. Just as I think I must have been about to guess it, May announced that it must be an umbrella. She wants to know what prize Cuthbert is going to send her. We had a very nice little visit from Mother, but it was a pity it was such a very brief one and such very bad weather while she was here. It has been beautiful ever since. I have somewhat improved in my shooting at our miniature rifle range here, though I am never able to pay more than a single visit each week. I went last night for just 15 minutes and I shot in three competitions, making scores of 38, 40 and 39 
out of a possible 40. So I was very pleased with myself. We are anxiously waiting to hear whether Vera is again chosen for hockey as an international. We are having a whist drive here next Tuesday at the school. I should have liked to have heard Aldwin's explosive remark at the Sydenham whist party about boobies. I'm looking forward to further stories from Arthur about the boy Watson Major. Satan is flourishing. He now even accompanies me round the garden when I'm out with the air gun searching for sparrows. And he retrieves for himself very well, but he will not keep to heel, except when he rubs himself against my boots to mildly expostulate when I am sometimes a long time in being able to shoot one. Time is up. So please forgive this uninteresting note from your hurried brother, Edmund. Notes on Edmund's letter. Several of the siblings have mentioned the page for excuses. This was clearly posted around with the budget for each sibling to write down the excuses for why they had not written their letter. Sadly, the excuses page did not survive. Edmund also comments on the sad loss of the budget in the post using fabulous language. He writes, though still somewhat attenuated in dimensions, it will doubtless soon attain its normal condition and temperature. Till then, I think we ought to be very careful with it and guard against any possible shocks that might, for instance, be occasioned by any too sudden starts without a sufficient time for recuperation between its different stages of drivel. Edmund clearly thinks a lot of the budget letters are full of drivel. The Church Lads Brigade have formed a minstrel troupe. They would have had blacked up faces and Edmund actually describes the troupe using the N word, which is of course now considered a racial slur. But a hundred years ago, Edmund probably felt he was being factual in his description. Often I am outraged at my often useless great-grandfather. He says... Just as I think I must have been about to guess the riddle, May announced that it must be an umbrella. Of course, you were about to guess the right answer, Edmund. Your pride has received a jolt because your clever wife, carrying the baby you never mention, worked it out before you did. I do find it odd that Edmund doesn't mention the baby that was born just four days after this letter is finished. Maybe it was considered bad luck or poor form to mention a pregnancy. Anyway, Avis will shortly announce the safe arrival of the new baby, my granddad, in her next budget letter. Mother is generally mentioned just in passing, so I know very little about her. She goes to stay with one sibling or another, and this makes them so busy and delays them writing their letter. But generally, very few comments are made about Mother, or what they actually did during her visit. She was much loved and appreciated by the siblings, but they don't actually talk about her, presumably because she read the letters when the budget arrived at Sydenham. It seems that Dr Cox always stayed at home in Sydenham and Mother went to visit her children. And then we get the wonderful snippet about Satan, the clergy dog. Satan is flourishing. He now even accompanies me round the garden when I'm out with the air gun for sparrows. And he retrieves for himself very well, but he will not keep to heel, except when he rubs himself against my boots to mildly expostulate when I am sometimes a long time in being able to shoot a sparrow. I have not found any other mentions of Satan the dog in any other budget letters. Very frustrating, as I would love to know more. Why, if you are a Church of England priest, would you name your dog Satan? I asked my Auntie Judy this a couple of years ago, and she roared with laughter at her outrageous granddad. Well, you know, Francis, those siblings did all have a very peculiar sense of humour. She told me that Edmund would have found it very funny to name his dog Satan and she wasn't at all surprised. Woohoo, I have got through recording this episode without the lawnmowers starting. Small achievements. In the next episode of 100 Years of Cox, Avis announces the arrival of baby Leslie. Long live the budget, she says. 
Vera again wins a place in the All England Ladies Hockey Team and Avis describes her new governess post with a fascinating amount of detail. Her new boss is the Honourable Mrs Marshall Brooks, whose family live at Portal in Tarpawley in Cheshire. Avis sounds quite overwhelmed, as there are footmen who serve dinner, just like in Downton Abbey. This wealthy family also owned Sunnyside House in Rawtonstall, not an attractive place to live due to the mines, says Avis, and they also have a house in London for the season, as you do. Avis really wants to learn to ride a horse and very much hopes the family will teach her. Enid writes with her news from Liverpool and gives another hint about who O.S. is and the disagreement between O.S. and Winston Churchill. Enid doesn't name him either, just says O.S. How frustrating. Auntie Enid, Edmund's great-granddaughter, is trying to follow your story and abbreviations are not helpful. And there is a letter from Wilfred, who is in the town of Hope in British Columbia, in Canada. 100 Years of Cox, the Machel Cox budget letters and all content is subject to copyright and belongs to both myself and the Bodleian Library in Oxford. You have been listening to 100 Years of Cox. Thank you for listening.